Letter 14. I read your next letter over and over. I will start by preaching the one lesson you badly need learning. This ain't no other person's side of the story. Am I right? It is pure and simple my side of the story. Correct me if I'm wrong. Only my side of the story needs telling the way I tell things. Would you say that's fair? Yes? Good. Then why the heck do you ignore me every time I ask you to allow me to say the usual profanities? I been asking over and over and over in my letters. Release me from this gormless vow of silence. Enough is plenty. I can't be crossing out words like perf and hurt every time I need to write them down. Don't it stand to reason? Plus, there ain't no harm in saying huck this and huck that every now and again. You must know this. Plus, plus, it ain't as if I'm blaspheming against our father who art, and for this I need... And for this I need to be put to the stone. I only ever blaspheme when it's necessary and appropriate, and only ever against human beings. Plus, plus, plus. If the curator of everything on earth and in heaven above really didn't want his creatures being rude about each other, he shouldn't have invented rude words for us to say, should he? <laughs> curator. I won't ask nicely again. In your next letter to me, you told me in a special wording what a girl needs to do if you don't allow her no rights. By the way, your next letter is most highly exhilarating, and I promise to get round to answering your brilliant question just as soon as I'm done giving you a fat lip. <clears throat> By the other way, since it took me hours to work out what your special wording means, I have taken the trouble to copy it down bit by bit. This is what you say I must do if you hark up. In the event that we are unable to satisfactorily address any reasonable grievance or complaint you have raised, <gasps> You may wish to have the matter forwarded directly and in full to the legal ombudsman or, if appropriate, to the solicitor's regulation authority. Proper fucking solicitors, ain't you? I nearly missed it. That hurt was hidden in loads of other hurt right down to the middle of page three. Luckily, a little birdie I know whispers in my ear how the beast you call the regulator and his ombudsman can make you freeze in hurl if he wants to. So now I know my rights, there ain't no excuse for tricksters. If you don't release me from my vow not to use reasonable foul words, I will grass on you. Meantimes, if I must, I will continue to cross out any and all of the foul language that comes to mind including hurt 
anyone else has said first, and I need to inform you of it, so as I can be honest and accurate. I filled out your legal aid forms, and I popped them in the envelope along with this letter. You will see I signed the forms everywhere there was dotted lines. Only, I didn't know what date it was, so I left that bit blank. I put in the birthday Scarly told me we had, so that was fine. But I never known my national insurance number. I only had Jenny Whatever's, so I will let you do that more troublesome part for me in your own time. When you look at my signatures, can you tell if I'm balmy or extravagant? Scarly said I was bits of both, but she told me this was acceptable so long as you are more lavish than loony. Mind you, Scarly was the other way round, cause loonies can see stuff the rest of us can't, and that's what Scarly done. Some will say people's insides come out when they do their signatures. Sounds harsh. What I say is, that's bollocks. If you want to find out what I'm really like, you need to get yourself over to the visits hall soon as, so we can have the face-to-face -face that's been missing in our letter-writing. Have Brambles told you yet what a bunch of ignorant pricks they are? They got me doing lifelong penance when I didn't even do shit. For fuck's sake. Shit is awful. All right. All right. I will grant. I been taking liberties putting too many crossed out foul words in this bit. But I do it so as you can feel the difference a good swear or two makes. Cause Brambles and Co. weren't just ignorant. They was ignorant hickers. They was royal hickers. You can't seriously be saying they don't deserve some crossed out rude words here and there, can you? Do you know what their Botox barista said? This was after the judge chucked me in the dungeons for the rest of my life. She said, fuck all. Not one word. She didn't even visit me in the cells to go tut tut and watch me tear my hairs out. At least leanovers got good enough manners to come down and chat. So I shouted and swore blind at him instead. I shouted obscenes that would make your hairs curl like a thicket of pubes. And what did Lean Over say to me next, over and over? He said, calm down. Calm down? I showed that child molester what calm down means. I headbutted the table so hard it cracked. Court security had to come along and drag me out. I never saw no one from Brambles and Co. after that again, and long may it last. It didn't hurt neither. It still don't. Not when I headbutt tables. Not when I punch doors after they've been locked. Not even when I scratch and scratch and scratch. Have I told you about this? Do you remember about my PTSD? And about my flashbacks? and about my personality disorders. Were you listening? Well, there's this whole other unknowable thing I got as well. I had spoken to no one about it. You are my first. 
You end furness who likes to sniff through other people's privates. Only, cause you're my new solicitor, furness can't do nothing. Cause that's breaking rules, Frank. And I got your number. You know how I got brought back from the dead? And there ain't hardly no greater miracle than that. What I found out was, there was this lesser miracle as well. I found it out when I was in hospital after I died. What this lesser miracle is, is everything that should hurt, don't. It ain't easy to get this across to ordinary pedestrians. Only, cause you're my solicitor, I will have a go. Imagine the aches and pains you get when some pucker punches you in the tummy. Only now there ain't no feeling. Apart from the thwunk, nothing happens. You can carry on getting battered by body blows till you're bored in the face. It don't even matter. After that, you can weigh in with a well-timed haymaker of your own making and stroll away feeling smug. It's just that some of us need to be more careful doing haymakers than others, because they can hurt. To this day, for my greater and lesser miracles, I give thanks to our Maker. I ain't too sure about the lesser miracle, though. I found out the hard way how you mustn't use this one too often, else the Holy Father in Heaven might frown upon you and could even stick you in hospital for surgery so you can repent. Take it from me, even if I ain't read the Bible end to end, cause that would be like reading a hucking dictionary end to end. I know from personal traumas how miracles granted by the high and mighty come with high and mighty prices. Prices steep enough to make grown-ups weep. With my greater miracle, the price is this. I get to serve penance for murdering my beloved sister when it weren't my doing what happened to her. But that is the mysterious ways of our dear Lord in heaven, I concede. It says so in scripture. No one gets to enter his kingdom willy-nilly, not unless you're on the list. With my lesser miracle, the price is steep as well. I end up with broken bits. They take ages to mend. There's still sores on my knuckles from when I punched the walls the other week. Only, there is a spin-off to my miracle medical condition. When it comes to not feeling nothing, what it means is no one can touch you. It makes you look harder. People might try and hurt you all they like. It just don't hurt. As far as the greater miracle goes, I would say the spin-off is I get to talk to a godsend in person so he can get me off. Only you ain't booked no legal to see me yet. Your second letter don't even say you're visiting soon. You can't expect me to write down my revelations in words without giving you the feelings that go side by side. And don't ask me to show my poetry. I might show it if I like, but you ain't allowed to ask. I suppose, cause you're my solicitor and you ain't come to visit yet, I will have to let you peek at some rhymes I made up. 
This one is about how seeing is believing. I call it, you should know better. It's got a dit dit ditty kind of beat. Writing to each other is a step along the ways. We got matters to consider so we can smash my case. But you should know better. Not only what I says. I says, you should know better. Not what I fucking says. I will grant it needs improving. Cause poems ain't meant to make plain sense. And this one does. I will work on it. Meanwhile, in your second letter, you asked your one brilliant question. You want to know what the weasel's real name is. Well, I shall tell you straight away. It is gross. Don't get me wrong. I don't mean her name is gross. What I mean is, just like the good Lord called you loser, the name he lumbered the weasel with was gross. Cause the Almighty can be cruel sometimes, as well as kind. Oh, God. It rattled me that the lens you saw my life through was Marley's case and nothing but. We talked of little else. But you must remember, I was picking up dozens of other clients during a normal working week. They all had their own stories, and I became tangled in all of them. As you're still officially my assistant, I could tell you about Ava Gillian's case. It's just one example to give you a wider impression of what was happening to me, and maybe to warn you about the pitfalls of following such a career. Her father was English, her mother was French. She'd grown up in northern France. In times when it had been easy to do, her family had moved back to England. Ava was 12 when this happened, but she was unable to settle in English schools. The day she turned 16, she abandoned her education. When I got to know her, she'd just turned 20. Since leaving school, her circumstances hadn't improved much. She was living at home, unemployed, with her younger sister and her mother. Her father had died of a heart attack. Her mother worked in a supermarket. Her physique was slight. Her face was square with high cheekbones. But for a propensity to neglect her appearance, she might have been attractive. I think she warmed to me because I told her she was so uncommitted. I hadn't meant it as a compliment. To this extent, I recognized myself in her. She had a hive of tattoos that reached up from her shoulders up towards her jawline mostly fantastical creatures and symbols. Her eyes were blue, but there was nothing luminous about them. If Ava smiled, it was generated out of a longing to be happy, 
rather than any of the usual reasons that might produce a smile. Despite her wariness, she had a stubborn streak, which she ought to have been able to benefit from. In our initial meeting, I suggested that she should return to education. She spoke two languages. She used to be sportive. She hadn't been able to find work in over a year, though. The death of her father in 2016 seems to have made her more despondent. She acted as if all she could do was resign herself to the fate that was weaving itself around her. I'd seen this kind of decline many times. It often happened with those who were either traumatized by something or someone, or more typically because their education had been neglected. Ava relied on a combination of benefits as well as support from her mother. Because she suffered from bouts of epilepsy, she was able to claim an enhanced monthly allowance. She rolled her own cigarettes and smoked heavily. After paying her mother token rent and contributions towards her meals, her budget was exhausted. She learned how to steal. She was still paying fines to the magistrate's court out of her benefits. This was for a combination of low-level thefts and a public order offense she was convicted of in 2016. Ava had other convictions, one for possession of cannabis. On another occasion in 2017, she was sentenced to a community order for being in possession of a small amount of cocaine. She was still being supervised by the probation service. And now she was in trouble again. She was caught carrying a knife. Having denied being in possession of a bladed article in a public place, she'd elected to have a trial in the Crown Court. She couldn't accept that she'd done anything wrong. Her trial was due to take place at the beginning of July. But while she'd been... But while she'd been through proceedings in the lower courts, and felt confident enough with those, Ava couldn't have known what to expect from a Crown Court trial. A month before her trial, we met for a case conference. To my surprise, she'd dyed her hair blonde. It had been dark before. She was presentably dressed. After I complimented her, she explained that she'd decided to follow my advice and take up further education. This was good news. She told me she wanted to be a professional landscaper. She said her diploma course in horticulture was due to begin in September. It wasn't the first time I'd suggested a return to education as a form of legal advice. Most defendants were not only penniless, they were impoverished in other essential ways. Anyone familiar with the court system understood that defendants making an effort to educate themselves was one of the best stories to tell. As opposed to the reality of most defendants who saw themselves as having no prospects at all. You knew how frustrated I was being a lawyer but I was never able to explain why. It's hard to know where to begin. Partly, it was the way criminal justice was used as a tool to suppress the unruly poor. That bothered me daily. If Britain had the highest prison population in Europe then, it was because there were so many living in poverty. 
Almost all my cases involved people who had given up in one way or another and had little or nothing to live for. I believed Ava's aspirations were genuine. In the wake of her father's death, she told me she finally wanted to do something positive. But now that she'd committed herself to a trial by jury, there was every reason to feel apprehensive. The stakes were just too high. That was another problem. If Ava was convicted in July, she was likely to get a prison sentence, along with a devastation so complete that even she couldn't imagine coping. I'd told her what you're meant to tell clients, that if a person faced with a criminal prosecution was prepared to admit what they'd been accused of by the police, the policy of the UK courts was to punish that person more leniently. It was my duty to say as much. I explained that a conviction after a trial logically brought with it harsher punishments. Ava knew all of this anyway. I don't mind telling you the situation made me upset. Though it's strange to say, I don't think I was ever affected in this way before 2016. It seemed to have something to do with coming out of hospital and going back to work. It was like a light being switched on and I could suddenly see where I was. What I saw with clarity was that I was enmeshed in a system that leaned towards convictions and only used defense lawyers to make it seem fair. Over the years, it was getting easier for the Crown to secure convictions. On behalf of society, the courts blazed away at the unruly poor. I just couldn't tolerate the idea anymore that punishing people by putting them in prison was the solution. Ava, like most who entered not guilty pleas, was finding it hard to sustain her resolve. I have to say, although I thought her defense was worthwhile, I expected a conviction. Maybe the right judge would take kindly to a young woman whose father had recently passed. I tried to offer hope by advising that if Ava was convicted, the custodial sentence she faced might be suspended. I felt at any moment, though, that she might accept the allegation and have done with it, if only to limit the damage to her prospects that must follow a conviction. But listen, it's not that I want to dissuade you from what you're trying to achieve. Don't think that. I'm just trying to share with you a perspective I had when we first met. In fact, that's what I really need to explain. The fact that since 2016, I had changed so fundamentally. I began to notice it shortly after going back to work, how restless I was. I wanted everything to be in order, but it wasn't. It was always out of place. In the throes of an ordeal, in the police stations or the courts, I would begin to feel committed in ways I hadn't previously experienced, maybe even obsessed. As I lurched from one crisis to the next, from one defendant to the next, which is the daily diet of the criminal lawyer, it often occurred to me that I was on a ledge, looking into an abyss, which is surely why I reacted in the way that I did in Marley's case. 
The prosecution against Ava was based on the fact that she'd been in possession of a kitchen knife. She'd taken the knife onto the street. She'd been standing on a corner when two officers spotted her holding it. The trial was about whether she could be said to have acted out of necessity or in self-defense. She was going to tell the jury that she'd used the knife to fend off someone called Giles Gidding only moments before. She'd spent the night at Gidding's flat. They'd met at a pub. The next morning, he became abusive. They were in his kitchen. When he threatened to hit her, she grabbed the knife and waved it in his face. She ran out of the flat then, keeping the knife. When the Crown realized that she still wanted a trial, they decided they needed a statement from Gidding. He gave them one. Now they were going to call him as a witness. The statement was served on me a month before the trial. What Gidding was saying now was that she had no reason to be afraid of him. He was in his early thirties and worked for an estate agent. In his statement, he claimed that on the morning Ava was arrested, she'd flown into a rage. She chased him around his flat, screaming at him. She'd taken a knife from his dishwasher and set about venting her spleen. While he couldn't explain Ava's ferocity, Gidding did recall a minor dispute they were having at the time. He'd paid for a number of drinks the previous night. When they discussed it that morning, a disagreement arose as to how much the bill had come to. He implied that Ava's behavior was likely to have been a burst of Gallic temper. I will come back to this case, because I was involved in it up to just a few days before we met. What I hope, I suppose, is that you're beginning to see not only what kind of life I was leading, but what kind of person I was becoming after what I can only think of as a near-death experience. Meanwhile, between attendances at the police stations and various courts, my phone pinging constantly, and a stream of letters from people in prisons, Marley's missives were piling up on my desk. Not long before, they'd all been crammed into a drawer I used to keep papers in I didn't want to look at. The latest one was her eagerly awaited reply to my letter, thanking her for her instructions and offering her legal aid for my services. Although the letters were addressed to me, I was always the last one in the office to see them. Now that I'd taken her case on, I was having to read them again and listen to the comments of others who had read them. Her latest had been opened and was in general circulation with colleagues. This time, the jibes were about a number of scornful remarks Marley had made about me. She was complaining that I'd failed to grant her permission to use the more colorful language she preferred. The degree to which she was forcing this issue was unsettling. I found her sanctimony impossible to take seriously. She was relying on an oath she'd made to a prison officer never to swear again in order to play out a theme that was too childish. It really was no part of a request for advice and assistance from a solicitor to help her appeal her murder conviction. Quite apart from this absurd aspect of Marley's letters, I was also having to contend with the labored expressions of her religious orientation. 
Each mention of her Lord and Maker seemed nothing more than an affirmation of her zealotry and only added to the difficulty of taking her seriously. I don't mean to make excuses for myself, and I'm not challenging your own religious views. I accept them, and I encourage you. Nor was it any kind of atheism on my part that quickly biased me towards Marley. I think it was just that I'd become too serious and troubled about the work I did. Secretly, I'd started to write a book. I usually did this late at night or in the early hours. At first, it was just any thought that came to my head, just to get it out, just to hear my misgivings. Soon, though, it turned into a personal study of the history of skepticism. We talked about my book, or at least you tried to find out more. I'm sorry now I was so coy. In a strange way, skepticism as a topic seems to have come to me as a saving grace. What it boils down to historically is simple. Any proposition, no matter what it is, can be affirmed as effortlessly as it can be denied. It is therefore advisable to withhold judgment skeptics say. Perhaps you'd like to read my book one day. I'd love that. I have to admit, though, Marley's claim that God had personally ordained that I should be her solicitor for the purposes of her appeal was one proposition I could have done without. Because of her persistence, and because of a foreboding I couldn't quite articulate then, I was beginning to feel I'd made a mistake in taking her case on. After the English fashion, my colleagues continued to find her letters laugh-out-loud funny. They looked forward to more of the same in weekly installments, much the way children used to look forward to TV programs. I, on the other hand, felt I was being dragged into something more bizarre and complicated than I could ever have imagined. How right I was. Looking back from this vantage, I wonder why I didn't pay more attention to my foreboding. <laughs>